The Weekend Variety Wireless. Have you heard of Kristen Hirsch? She was the front person for the Throwing Muses. Great indie band, 1990s and beyond. She's got a new album out, and I've got uh, permission to play a bit of uh, a couple of them. Um, she's a stunning songwriter. Featured on Tuesday on the AM show and the music review thing that I do from time to time. And I said she's got this personality d- disorder thing where she actually has considered herself as two people. And there was some scepticism. All will be explained. This interview's worth it. She's a great story. It's from a couple of years ago, but still so relevant. And her situation will be explained. Kristen Hirsch is with us, founder member of Throwing Muses, tremendous indie band, but since then done so much, much, much more solo material. Kristen, in the late 80s, there was, it seemed to be a huge flourishing of really, really creative bands. It almost coined the term the indie band. Were you kind of conscious of that, being in the midst of it? We knew that there was nothing for us to strive for other than the night ahead. So our goals were short-term and pure, which is a good vocabulary to maintain. Record companies got sniff of this, though, and signed a whole lot of bands up, and there were temptations for compromise. We let them take us out to dinner because we were poor and we wanted the calories. So a lot of rich guys with fake tans and hair plugs kind of babbled at us for... Years. We we fought them off because we knew that they would sign you for 10 records. They could drop you anytime. You couldn't leave. They didn't have to release your material. If they did, they owned it, not you. And it had nothing to do with the fact that they made the money and we didn't, which is also true, but it wasn't our concern. It was more that we wanted to own what we did and never suck. We knew they were all about suckings. Warners. They wanted to keep you on just as bait for other bands and weren't that interested in promoting you. They did not promote us. They let us make records and I appreciated the money because it costs a dollar a minute in a studio, even at our special rate. But they would not promote what we did. In fact, anything we got was uh, by accident. And in fact, when um, radio stations were playing our single Bright Yellow Gun... Warner Brothers began calling them and telling them to take it off the air, that Throwing Muses was not the record they were working. They were working some other records I won't mention. 
and the radio stations would fight them and say, but we love this song. They're getting all, we're getting all these calls. And they said, no, that's not what we're working. Take it off the air right now. <laughs> they actually would destroy our records. That's like infanticide. It is, if you care. I was about not paying attention. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't my deal. My my job was to be a, an actual musician and avoid all the fashion shoots I could. Marketing was not my job, so I let them fail. And ultimately it meant we failed in quotation marks, but success to us was playing good music even if nobody hears it. Were you aware of much New Zealand music at that time? Because it was a period we were kind of proud of, and if there was anything that was kind of definitive, I suppose it was the flying nun flowering of the 80s and 90s. Walking to this station, I was just talking about flying nun and how amazing they were, how we would visit our licensees all over the world and they would do that wink and a nod thing. You can visit our vaults and take home all the music you want. We would just say, you have no idea how much we hate music. (laughs) I don't want to see your vault. (laughs) Flying Nun, we were sending home crates of music. They were so wonderful. They had such good taste. Is there any state of mind or situation where you find music just comes to you? Oh, it only comes to me. I don't make it up. I don't sit down and write songs. I hear them and they bother me for a few days until I get up at 4 a.m. when it's neither night nor day and it's very quiet and I serve the song and then it leaves me alone. We sort of have a deal that way. Your story of mental health issues, it's been something you've kind of had to share because you're sharing your music. Dissociative ID disorder. Uh, I was treated for PTSD which revealed an alternate personality, which turned out to be music. And trying to meld these two personalities, I was in therapy for the first time since I was a teenager, and the therapist said, you know, I need you to recreate your identity, so get your band back together, go out on the road, and relive your personality as these two integrated personalities. And I said, well, you can't really do that. Both of my bands have day jobs. And she said, well, solo, who are you most like? Who are your people? And I said, well, I don't know, like Elliot Smith or Nick Drake or Vic Chestnut. Mm. She said, well, I want you to reach out to these people and create a network so that you feel a part of something. I said, well, they're all dead. She said, what? All of them? I said, yeah, by their own hand, actually. We're very fragile people. (laughs) So it's been a difficult road trying to be music that was always invisible. I had no memory of having written or performed any of my music before, and now I'm present at all times. And so I have that personality's balls, but I also have her memories and her pain and... It's hard walking around being music. Can you bring yourself to see yourself back then? This dissociative look that you said, look, people really should have seen what was up. Absolutely. And there are videos where I am actually performing and you can see the difference. My eyes are rolling back in my head. I'm practically drooling. It's like a seizure. And I was a little resentful, actually, that there had to have been 
some psychiatrists, some mental health experts in my audiences that saw me classically shifting into another personality. You start to shiver and shake. You stare off into the distance. You stop blinking and you become another person. And I would describe this process. People would watch it. And I guess they just thought it was metaphorical, but it wasn't. I had, and now I, I have my memories back. And I have to admit, I, it was sort of better when I could disappear. Okay, Candyland. Can you just comment on the tune? Yeah, it appears to be about the loss of my oldest son. Uh, he was kidnapped by his own father, and the subsequent custody battle was part of my PTSD. I didn't realize that his name is in the title. His name is Dylan. It's in the title, Candyland, until the journalist pointed it out to me. This is how unconscious music used to be for me. But it's it's definitely one of my best songs, and probably the one I, I cannot listen to or perform. <laughs> Kristen, uh, you're a musical treasure. Thank you so much for being Thank here. you. I so appreciate you having me. Weekend Variety Wireless At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live Cinema with James Crute G'day James G'day Graham, how are you? Great, been enjoying the New Zealand International Film Festival and let's tell people straight away um if they've tried to go to something or, or heard about it and the showings aren't on the schedule, there are extras happening and starting Monday the 6th of August. You, you lucky ducks, you've got another four days. Plus there's that animation festival that starts at the end of the week as well that they've sectioned off up there. But yes, if you haven't seen the um, Amanda Miller's excellent documentary on um, Celia Lashley, that one in particular, the brilliant Three Identical Strangers, which I thoroughly, thoroughly recommend. Mm. The one about the three three gentlemen who suddenly discovered each other. That That's just incredible. And Amanda um, Miller will be there for the Q&A as well, which yeah, is absolutely. always a bonus with the festival. 
Yeah, yeah, and one that I would encourage people to check out, which isn't in the extras, but, of course, there's the Australian documentary on censorship, which we talked about last week, and there's a couple of Q&As there. And she's um, the young um, documentary, Sarah Bridgeshaw. She is expecting explosive Q&As, actually. She's expecting what? Like Noam Chomsky's manufactured consent all over again. She's expecting what? some fireworks at her Q&As because a lot of people, she said when she did some in Sydney, there were a lot of people who were kind of upset. They expected it to be this kind of outrage documentary at what, you know, censorship taking things away from people. And then she kind of uh, comes up with this theory that, in fact, they actually saved Australia from from <laughs> just the whole tide of misogynist um, kind of, uh, you know, and, and exploitative clips in the 1950s and 60s. Although when I, I've seen it and those clips, it's those that are, um, you know, like the beating up women and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's a hard watch. It it's always, it's, 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 they are They are framed as the baddies. Yeah. Not the good guys. No, the, I mean, that's the interesting thing. Yeah. You know, and, and so that's why I think there could be some interesting debates. But anyway. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so there's, there's probably, in total, there's probably about nine or ten extras over the next few days, which is pretty cool. I've already heard rumours that there are going to be more screenings in Wellington as well, uh, which, of course, has still got another week or so to go, but they've already got sell-out sessions for all sorts of things, so they're all plotting a few days. It's good times. And, of course, one of the bonus... Uh, documentaries that they added to the lineup, and I think it's playing on Sunday, mm. is um, Sign of the Times, The Prince. Oh, yeah, why not? What a, I mean, that's another thing that um, is lovely about the festival. They, they don't disregard um, great things worth a big screen of the past. Yeah, that's right. And, and this, I think, was a documentary uh, that... Um, well, it was kind of a documentary, wasn't it? It was a good well, it's a concert film. Yeah. Um, th- this was one that used to play quite regularly, you know, in the days when multiplexes still ran film. People would have a couple of cans of this lying around, essentially, and play it late night on a Friday, when we still did late night Friday films, Graham. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, so this is, wow, it's way back from 87, and, of course, it's got Sheena Easton in it as yeah, well. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's it's concerts as they used to be, I guess. Yep, yep, true. Which, which reminds me, just going slightly off the um, New Zealand International Film Festival, if you want to continue that music documentary love, there's a very good one from Australia called Midnight Oil 1984. Oh, Get Out, really? Out next week. Yeah, which... Basically, there was this guy who followed them around on their, uh, what was it, Red Sails uh, tour. Yeah. Um, which happened to coincide with Peter Garrett uh, being called up by the, what was it, the... Uh, Green Party? Anti-nukes party. No, it wasn't. It wasn't even the Green Party. It was It was like an anti-nuclear party. Oh, the Values Party. <laughs> Remember them? Um, it, it was a fascinating thing. No, they, they, look, I, there's no mention of it, but you can't help but feel that they must have been influenced by Longy um, and the Longy government and their banning on warships because this happened at essentially the same time. Right, right. It was a nuclear disarmament party. And it's fascinating to watch all this concert footage of crazy, uh, you know, people going mad in these packs 
places, you know, with only a few thousand, uh, only well, that could only hold a few thousand, and they had a few thousand more than that in these places. Yeah. And the the ceilings just used to drip with sweat. And Peter Garrett, of course, was well, he could he could beat David Boone a dance off, couldn't he? Yeah, he could. And, and of course, whirling dervish, New Zealand's own Bones Hillman on base, former oh, right. suburban reptiles and swingers. Yeah, Red Sails in the Sunset was the name of the album. Okay. Um, there's even a Shipyards of New Zealand is one of the songs on it. Oh, okay. Uh, the swimming... yeah, well, that's just a heads up. That's starting next week. It, 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 and it's a f- the fascinating juxtaposition of a band facing their own demise as their lead singer kind of dabbles in politics. Right, 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 right. And then got caught using um, not a single-use plastic bag and <laughs> had to be cut down from a tree. Well, in fact, I, it was only the weird man of the Australian electoral system, the point at which it gets taken out of the voters' hands and in the hands of the various parties that stopped them getting in. Right. And took them another 20 years to get there. Okay, the swimming pool. Yeah, now this is uh, one of the classics, I guess a bit like Son of the Times, really. This is one of the classic films that they've brought back for the 50th anniversary of uh, Auckland. And uh, oh, when, what year was it? I think it was late 1960s, 1969. And, of course, it's got those kind of classic French actors and actresses of, of the day, Romy Schneider, Alain Delon, and, of course, the Brit Jane Birkin. Um, and... Um, Yes, it's it's just kind of lots of people looking fabulous in the south of France, but of course it's also a bit of a psychological thriller at the same time. Oh, fabulous in the south of France will do. Yeah, exactly, and it's just one of those twisty-turny kind of things, and everybody looks grand, and but there's just some kind of darkness going on. And of course, it was actually remade a few years ago. If you go to it, see, see that it looks a wee bit familiar to something you might have seen. Um, the uh, Italian director, Luca Guadagnino, made it a couple of years ago as a bigger splash with Tilda Swinton and um, Ray Fine. Oh, oh, I had no idea. Yeah, well, there you go. All right, and speak up. Yeah, now this is uh, one of the uh, more interesting docos that's there. And um, it's uh, it's an inspirational documentary. I hate that kind of phrase, but yeah, it's about a group of French students who um, who are doing training for a public speaking competition. So if you ever want to hear some eloquent uh, people speaking French, then this is the way to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> why, why would I want to go and see that? You haven't sold it to me. Well, I, I mean, it's that spellbound factor, isn't it? Oh, you know, okay. Get a group of people, get throw them together. They've all got interesting, different backgrounds. But I guess it's because it becomes such a linguistic contest at the same time, and it's you know a bit of oratory going on. The script writing's not poor in this. Let's just say that. Okay, and <laughs> human competitiveness. Yeah, that's the thing. And and we always like a bit of competitiveness in a thing that isn't normally competitive a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. Don't we? I mean, isn't that why we watch hot dog eating competitions? Isn't that why we isn't that why I go to the Pie Awards? Well, exactly. You must have been a proud papa watching the Pie Awards this year, surely. Oh, it was marvelous. Yes, yes. The potato top's still there. It's a t- <laughs> it was only due to my petitioning and the commercial mince and cheese. I get no credit for this. No. I'm not mentioned on the... Anyway. Okay. 
Oh, we must give people a heads up for something happening tomorrow, August the 5th, Sunday, 3 p.m. at the Winter Garden at the Civic. It's worth going to the Civic even if you're not going to see anything. It's just such a wonderfully preserved piece of architecture. Labyrinthine. Anyway, there is a live event there, and it's to do with the film festival. They've decided to put together a panel on, oh, hello, news and fake news. Yes. That's right, and uh, you wouldn't know anything about fake news, would you? You've always been a... No, no, not at all. Exactly. But you see, that's fake news. Yeah. In itself. But I think, you know, look, it's great that we've, we've, uh, I won't say borrowed it from from other bigger festivals, but it's great that we have these kind of things. Um, So we've got this Kerry Spackman, Igor Zelensky, fortunately not a couple of far-right speakers from Canada as far as I know. Oh, it should be, eh? It's part of this, but maybe they should ask them along. That would be be a fabulous little... Theron Hosking, maybe. Well, hell yeah. Richardson, let's just, just go for it. Yeah, yeah, go for it. I, I'm just actually, you know, why not? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm all for it. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's an interesting panel discussion. I mean, there have been a couple of films that have looked at that, but also at this idea of uh, censorship and, and who's doing the censoring. That uh, documentary, The Cleaners, on the people they marvelous. Uh, contract in Manila is marvellous. Yeah, exactly. You finally realise, you know, how how... Facebook sort of works without yeah. really knowing. Yeah, exactly. It's it's the, one of those it things. Explains a few things, but doesn't others. <laughs> yeah, you might think um, that uh, malice is behind some censorship when really it's just uh, um, cheap labour relations. But but I mean, you know, we 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 talk about fake news a lot now, but uh, you know, a lot of it has been going on for a long time. Look, we've we've given up our lives to the likes of Apple and Google, and as soon as we Google things, we're automatically, um, you know, allowing on someone else to yeah. yeah. To, to decide what is news and what isn't. And Facebook is an absolutely classic example of how it promotes things and doesn't. Why, I mean, why else would Viagogo exist if not for Google's algorithm? Yeah, exactly. And Mariana Alexander, she's uh, from the New Zealand Herald, has been for a long time. Uh, Kerry Spackman's worth it. He's written some good books. Um, yeah. And he's, oh, they call him a high-performance neuroscientist or something. But... Uh, Look, he's he's a good solid head, and he'll be a good foil to any um, I, I don't know that are, that are particularly soft about this sort of thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, and just a, a heads up on a couple of other great docos that are coming, or either out or coming. There's a, a second Whitney Houston documentary, Graham, in, in a year. I can't believe it. I didn't think it could be better than last year's, but it is. This this one, he actually got um, Kevin McDonald actually got access to the family, and um, rather than being kind of a you know the family were all great, it kind of opens up a whole lot of schisms within the family. Yeah. The brothers take the blame for some of the drugs. There's uh, a revelation about abuse when Whitney was younger, and her dad's really a bad bad guy all round. Yeah. Oh well, there you go. It's not yeah, and that the often. Robin Williams documentary that's on Sky yeah. really is worth checking out as well. It's on Soho on the 12th. Oh, good. Um, come inside my mind. Well worth checking out, particularly if you're a fan of Williams. Well, it's not every day. You can be dead and a franchise, but there you go. Whitney Houston. Yes. All right. On that cheery note, we'll leave you, James Crute. Thank you. Max Cryer up next um, and getting a dander up. Whatever the hell a dander is, stand by.
This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort. Words Here he is, Max Cryer. How's the week been? Well, they keep telling me it's winter. Mm. Um, is it winter? June, 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 July and August, the winter months. Does that mean that automatically we're going to spring when it's September? No, of course not. It's always a gradual thing, isn't it? Yes, it's always sort of different each year. Mm. Um, daylight saving, that starts so early, doesn't it? It's like September or something now. And you have to change... And of course, that's difficult in this age of mechanical devices, you know, where you sometimes it's not easier. Like, you just can't put your fingertip against the clock and move it round. Oh. You've got to press buttons. It's oh. like an hour, a minute. A lot of the clocks these days, they've had it instilled in them, and they won't forget that daylight saving happens on this certain date. And the clocks will do it by themselves? Yeah, a lot of them do. Oh. Yeah. I don't know how. What if it changes in a week? Oh, look. What happens if there's a power breakdown or something? Oh, well, then we're all just toast. <laughs> we're all just toast. <laughs> Nothing would happen. Okay. Uh, word of the week this week is dander. D-A-N-D-E-R. Yes, it intrigued me a bit that um, a newspaper reporter was bitchy enough to write that Winston Peters got his dander up. Quote, got his dander up. Oh, that dander. Yes, and um, it occurred to me to wonder... What exactly is dander when mm. you get it up? Um, the expression is weird in several ways because dander is an informal term for the skin cells which are shed from the bodies of animals. And why it is sometimes described as dander being up is hard to envisage because dander sounds very like the equivalent word for dandruff, which falls down rather than up. But over a long time, dander still means the equivalent of dandruff, which animals shed. And besides that, dander has developed inexplicably a second completely unrelated meaning of anger. It's all not quite clear. It's believed to have developed from an earlier expression, getting hackles up. Now, hackles are real. Hackles are the hairs on the back of a dog's neck. And they really do rise when the dog is excited. Apparently ours do as well. Ours do as well. Mm. Oh, I have mine shaved off. Have you left the hair on the back of your neck? Yeah, just a little bit. Oh, well, it's not that standing just, up now. For... Just in case I get my hackles up. Well, it's, listeners, I tell you, the hair on the back of your neck is not standing up at the moment, so he's obviously not. Um, so the, the dog's hackles stand up, and therefore, if the dog had any dander or dandruff on them, it would hardly go up with the hairs. It would go down, sink. But stranger things have happened. Sometimes over the years, the word dander has occasionally been replaced with dandruff, mainly for comic effects, since um, the better-sounding version, get your dander up, is well known. And if you say get your dandruff up, although it's comic, uh, it hasn't any real place in the expression's history. But there is one factor to be taken seriously. The word dander is also used to describe the process of fermenting when frothing and minor noises occur, bubbles breaking. Now that happens when yeast is brewing, when it's fermenting, it can indicate a state of unrest and agitation. You'll find it quoted, mentioned by Sir John Dalrymple, in 1796 when he says, the season for working molasses lasts five months, of which three weeks are lost in making up the dander that is the ferment. And there's an expression with a similar origin to that, getting oneself into a stew. 
hot, bothered, not in a good mood. So the expression getting your dander up has been in use since the 1800s, and most scholars tend to agree that the origin is a version of animals getting their hackles up when they're feeling fierce, plus the foaming and the bubbling of yeast when it's fermenting. Yeah, that sort of activity. Uh, it's not a violent anger. It's not fisticuffs. N no. To get your dander up it's is to be... It looks boiling, though. Well, the mental image when is it's dandering. someone... someone the fermenting is, thing. Yes, someone is making it perfectly clear that they're not pleased, mm. but they haven't actually clenched their fists. No. Seething, perhaps. Do you like that? I do, yeah. Um, okay, if you want to ask Max anything to do with the English language, words, their origin and meaning, that's a speciality. Uh, if you want to do that, just go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage and uh, Google will get you there straight away. Clearly marked uh, the email connections and also if you want to go to Facebook, you can do it that way as well. If you want to write a letter... Don't let us hold you back. P.O. Box 8880, Simons Street, Auckland. S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. And Max will get into the books or whatever it takes to find out what can be found out about words. Now, let's go on to bootleg. Origin thereof. Origin mm. of bootleg. If you say the word, the general association is with illegal trade in liquor. Now, the word dates back to the 1800s, and there are a couple of other explanations about its use. One belief is that originally, before the illegal liquor use, the practice of discreetly keeping a knife or a pistol slipped down into your high boots was known as bootlegging. I find that quite sensible. That, that sort of makes sense. Then there's another story that in early America there was a kind of rough bottle-type container made from leather. Um, this is not unusual. Uh, liquids are often kept in leather containers. But um, the keeping of fluids in leather wasn't unusual in early times, but it didn't seem to be known in France. And there is a legend that French visitors to America went home and told people that Americans drank liquor out of leather boots. <laughs> you look surprised. <laughs> yes, it is a bit bizarre, but I'm assured that that did happen. Um... This is in contradiction to what, what history tells us because early America served beer in tall, narrow drinking glasses and the common name for those, because they looked like a high boot, they were called boot glasses. Yeah. But the general consensus and the one which is easiest to believe is that men verging on the wrong side of the law, customary carried a pistol or a knife, slid down into their high boots, ready for a quick withdrawal, if the trouble should loom. And that practice was known as bootlegging. So, in any district or era where the sale of alcohol was severely guarded by law, or even forbidden, the practice of concealing bottles of grog slipped inside the high boots took the term used by the men who carried weapons inside their boots. And the practice of carrying one's own liquor and then expanding into trading illegal liquor selling, used the term bootlegging. Right. OK. Well, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It's complex, yes, but it does sort of follow a pattern. Mm. And it actually, it also, it's got another meaning. Uh, these days it's like uh, an unauthorised release or a, you could say a fake version of something else. is a bootleg. Really? Yeah. Oh. Like, I've got a bootleg copy of um, the Beatles' 
live in Savile Row. And the, so you get that. Yes, now that you say that, I, I have once or twice heard that, but I'm not familiar with it. It's, it's something which pretends to be real and probably is real, but is under the counter, so to speak. A little bit of that, yeah. Mm. And also there's, uh, it's used in the context, there's uh, a Beatles tribute band, and good heavens, I was so surprised how good they were, um, called the Bootleg Beatles. So they oh, make yes, absolutely... Yeah. No uh, secret of it. And if you were sitting in the audience... As if you could pull it off. And print, if yeah. you were sitting in the audience with a little recorder in your pocket, mm. you could bootleg the, boot the bootleg Beatles. Beatles. Yes. Exactly. Mm. That's very much like Achilles' heel, isn't it? Is it? Yes. How does it compare? Well, if you think about it, Achilles', Achilles heel was uh, his Achilles' heel. <laughs> yes, of course it was. <laughs> and he died because of it. Yeah. <laughs> that was his Achilles' heel. There's no doubt about it, his Achilles' heel. Do you know why? What? Do you know why? It's dipping someone in the drink, isn't it? Him. Him, yeah. And held, he was held by his heel mm. to push him into the spring of magic water, which made him impervious to arrows and etc. Oh, mm. But his heel hadn't gone into the water. No, it's Achilles' heel. Well, his name was Achilles. <laughs> it was Achilles. We won't go further. Max, thank you. Don't go anywhere, though. I still have you tethered to the microphone and we'll have a look at straight as a die and is it a trolley or is it a trundler? The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Words, 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 words. That's a whole lot of one word. Uh, Max Cryer answering your questions about their origin and meanings. Uh, straight as a die. Somebody has asked, Max. A police official was recently described in controversial circumstances as being actually straight as a die. Well, a die is sort of cubical, isn't it? Well, it, it's, a, Cubic. It's, a, it's a difficult one because a die is, is plural. Mm. Um, it's plural for dice. A dice, three die. But it's some... No, it's a die, three dice, isn't it? No. Mouse mice? N no. You see, it, the die is the singular. Oh, okay. And in English usage... It's yes, sort of yes, the die is singular and, sort of and dice is plural. Dice. On, there are three dice on the table, but yes. only one... On the next table, there's only one die. Mm. So it makes it awkward to explain, but I'll have a go. Um, straight as a die indicates honesty and loyalty, and it needs explaining because the word die is actually the singular of dice, as used in gambling. Plus, you'll sometimes hear the expression, the die is cast, meaning the form a situation is going to take, when we should really say the dice has been cast. Oh. The battle begins. But they all, relate, they all relate to the expression, smooth as a die, which is believed to refer to the beautifully smooth bone from which a gambling dice used to be made. It was referred to in the year 1530, when John Palsgrave who was a priest to Henry VIII, in 1530 he wrote, make this board as smooth as a dice, oh. which by 1732 had been modified into a song. Now let's get this right, Max. Smooth as a dice. Dice is the plural. It's smooth as a die. What are you worried about? The plural and singular form, die and dice. Everybody gets them wrong and uses them in the wrong place. Right. Die is singular, dice is plural. Well, yes, um, die is a singular. Hmm. You play cards so with, with a die. So straight as a die is what 
the guy would have said well, about didn't. the Well, he didn't. He said dice, you see, oh. because he was spelling it with a Y and he got it wrong. Oh. Now, there's a song by John Gray, uh, 1732, You'll Know Me Truer Than a Die, meaning that I'm more true than oh. a die. Where true as a die means correct and true. Now, over the following hundred years, this evolved into straight as a die, first seen in 1871. Quote, I'm a racing man up to a thing or two, but I'm straight as a die for honesty. That's a quote from 1871. Now, actually, these little cubes, a single die, or the plural dice, had a reputation of being smooth, true and straight, but it wasn't always the case. Modern dice are now almost always made so that the opposite faces add up to seven, and they're made of material that is of even density throughout. But... In earlier times, some crooked dice had more than one face that showed the same number, and they were made with weight inside to influence the way they fell. Mm. Hence the expression, a loaded dice. Right. Because if it had a sort of a couple of uh, lead shot put into one corner, it would fall that way. More Uh, often than not. So, straight as a die refers to a personal situation which is entirely honest, morally upright. They're comparing them to a cube which has been made with even weight throughout Uh and has the correct numbers on the top, bottom and sides. Um, um, Dice which have not been campered with. Now, during the late 1600s, they also developed a way of contriving internal spiral grooves inside a tube. What? Internal spiral grooves inside a big tube, which would then have a metal rod pushed through it, and that would come out at the other end with what we call a groove to receive it, and we got the expression straight as a die, because it still means 100% reliable. If there was a mistake on the grooves inside that tube, when the spiral came out with its screw formation and it wasn't accurate, it wouldn't do what it was supposed to do in carpentry. What's it supposed to do? I'm, what are we putting in a hole that's got rifling in it? You put in this plain piece of metal and you mm. push it through and it comes out as a screw. Oh, okay. So we're making a screw. Yeah, the die is the actual tube with the upraised, upraised little mountains inside it. Ah, okay. And you push the metal through it, or mechanically, and that is a die, and it has to be straight. Every single line of its um, engravings has to be straight. Now, the engineering implements that engrave thread grooves into dozens of metal shapes every day are called a die when there were dozens of them operating, so they're actually dice. But both words indicate a reliable, unshifting accuracy and responsibility. Mm. So the term is often heard said about people. They'll say, oh, you know that Graham, he's a good man, he's as straight as a die. Never heard it. Well, I wouldn't say it to you because then you'd get (laughs) swollen-headed. But the die that they're talking about is the little lump that you play cards with that has not been tampered with, or it's a big pipe with grooves inside it that form the shape of a screw when you push a metal through. Okay. I like the second. Um, Is it, you know, really has to be straight, whereas a die is just cubic, isn't it? Yes, but a die is only for um, for games, Mm. and uh, the die that you play cards with, although it can lead to sort of financial problems, certainly can. But much important, more importantly, to the industry of building and civilization, is that the die has its groove straight. Mm.
All right. This was an interesting question someone asked on Facebook. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was. I thought it was quite a neat little observation. Yes, this person went to the supermarket and pushed around a trolley and emptied the goods into her car after paying and then put the trolley back in the trundler rack. Yes, well, she had to because it said... Um, her words were, you go to the supermarket, you put... Uh, pull a trolley around and put your shopping into it. When you finish, she said, you go outside and transfer the shopping into the car, you return the trolley to what is then called the trundler park. At some point, a trolley has turned into a trundler. Is this some kind of magic that happens without us knowing? Well, I have to say that I found this intriguing, but I have to say right now there is no definite answer. I did a search, and throughout Australia, Britain, USA and New Zealand, there are several different names for these mini-transports into which shopping goes, or golf clubs accompanying the player. I can find a certain cohesion in the word trundler, which more often than not refers to a cylindrical shopping bag held upright against a light metal frame with a handle at top and wheels at the bottom. But that is a usual name rather than an official one. And because in 99.99% of cases such a trundler is owned by the shopper, I can see the point that there is a faint offence in the supermarket putting up a sign, and one of them in Auckland has, I, I looked at it to see, has a big sign saying, it is forbidden to take trundlers out of the car park and there's an anti-trundler stealing clocking device in place. Oh. Now, since we assume you Very and I, collectible trundlers. Well, what about the woman who owned it? Who, no, this, this, this sign has got to go outside that supermarket mm. because it's offensive. Trundlers Why is it offensive? It's there. It's trundlers, isn't it? It says trundlers. Yeah. It is forbidden to take trundlers out of the car park. Well, they're the just telling you don't do it. Yes, but if you own the trundler, of course you can take it out of the car park. Oh, do, oh well. The, the trundler is the one with the wheels at the bottom and the yeah. handles at the top. Yeah. I don't take my own trundler to the supermarket. Well, then you're an eccentric, but this woman isn't. So, the, the only, so what about trolleys? Let's look at trolleys. Good. The only known definition of a trolley is a low-wheeled cart adapted for specific purpose. And that covers their presence on railways, down mines, on building sites and shopping, at least inside the store. I somehow can't imagine people going home down the street with their shopping in railway trolleys. But I do see them going home with their trundlers every day. So, because there's no strict definition of the vehicles, I can understand this listener being intrigued at a supermarket using both terms by overwhelming perception, people who go shopping with a trundler do not need to return it to what is called a trundler park because they own their trundler and they're going home with it. Oh, I get it. You're talking about the little things that you're carting around yourself, not the metallic, big, shiny, stainless steel things. That's that the trolley. That's exactly the same as the one used in mines. It's the same shape, same principle, f oh, four no. wheels. I've missed a meeting. <laughs> you should listen more carefully. Now, trolleys inside the shop are very convenient, and without any misconception who owns them, they are ungrudgingly returned to a trolley park. 
So the listener's curiosity is quite valid, and I agree with it. If indeed the supermarkets provide trundlers as available to golfers with a motor to drive them around, I could understand their need to keep them on the premises, but I never saw a supermarket providing those. Most people I see shopping with a trundler. It is not motorised. The customer mm -hmm. owns it, oh. and she's allowed to walk home with it. Oh. And if not, if she uses a trolley, it should go into what is called a trolley park. We should march on Queen Street for this up and down the country. I think anyone... George Street and Dunedin. We'll go you and me, Max, with signs. Stop your trundler nonsense sort of thing. Don't even think about it because it could happen. I mean, if people listening actually agree with this woman, and I agree with her, mm. um, that she has her own trundler that she takes and puts stuff in and wheels home, um, if she uses the trolley inside the supermarket, which we all do, mm. you quite logically expect you have to give it back at the end. Yes. But if the sign says, trundler's here, and there's an electric device to stop you taking a trundler out of the supermarket parking lot, well, then it's offensive. End of story. All right. August the 4th. They're getting upset about... It's getting upset about semantics, isn't it? Really, Max? It's good fun, though. Well, language is my business, and I don't like to see it... Down with this sort of thing. Yes, I like to see it Down with this sort of thing. We'll be marching. August the 4th, 130 years ago today. Now, on today's anniversary in New Zealand, this is today, New Zealand became the first place in the Southern Hemisphere to have a town lit by electricity. Reefton, on the west coast of the South Island, had organised its own turbine, run by water from the Inangahua River, and on the evening of August the 4th, 1888, the streets of Reefton left into light, reaching way up to the surrounding countryside and trees. And inside the Odd Fellows Hall was reported to be a scene of striking splendour in New Zealand's first electrically lit town. Wow, good on Reefton. Eh? There, what a thing that must have been. Extraordinary. <coughs> Major event. Yeah. Um... I wonder what the light bulbs were like. Well, according to reports, um, it was very successful this first night, which was, what, 130 years ago mm. today. Uh, and the lighting was quite powerful. The streets were lit up. The Odd Fellows Hall, as we've heard, was a sort of festive centre. But they could see the surrounding district, which mm. they'd never seen at night before. Beautiful trees and hillsides. Um, a really great teacher is always memorable, isn't it, when you had a great teacher. Yes, yes it is. Um, a physics teacher, and I was terrible at physics. I, I felt bad for him that I was so bad at physics. Um, and, but he really did try with me. It didn't work. Uh, he was from the Highlands of Scotland, a little place called Akeltibri. 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 And you can look it up. Uh, and we asked him, what was it like there, this tiny little place in Scotland and he said we had the first refrigerator oh. it arrived by boat it arrived by boat but we knew had electricity <laughs> yet all the townspeople did come around and watch the refrigerator of an evening oh even though it wasn't yes. working well they were anticipating some sort of el electricity supply um, the refrigerator in Uncle Tiburi for a lot of the season I, I suspect might have kept it warmer than the outside was your physics teacher very old no no <laughs> no but he had that lovely Highland accent yeah good one all right uh, Max thank you very very much and we will speak again next week. Keep the questions coming in. Max likes a busy inbox. 
So uh, you can ask uh, by email on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. It's clearly demarked. And you can ask a question on Facebook. And if you want to write, P.O. Box 8880 Simon Street, Auckland. S-Y-M-O-N-D-S. Thank you, Max.